Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you are doing well. We are back with Dr. Patrick Moore. He is one of the founding members of Greenpeace and the author of the highly recommended book, Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, The Making of a Sensible Environmentalist. Now, I know you've told this tale a million times before, but for um, a lot of my new listeners, this would be a surprise. What was the original intention, at least in your participation in the environmental movement, and what did it turn into that, to some degree, turned you against it? Greenpeace started with just those two words the first time that the long tradition of peaceful protest and nonviolence to gain change in government policies, etc., and the newly emerging consciousness of the environment, the green, so Greenpeace was a, really a new concept, and that's what gave it so much power at that time when it, was dis, when it was defined in the early 1970s. Our first mission was on the peace side primarily to end the threat of all-out nuclear war, and we chose to protest against U.S. nuclear hydrogen bomb testing in Alaska and sailed a boat across the North Pacific in order to bring media attention to opposition to the tests and help change the course of history. We spearheaded the campaign that caused President Nixon to end the hydrogen bomb testing in Alaska. There were four more tests planned. And this was at the height of the Cold War and the height of the Vietnam War. And we kind of became heroes among a large number of people for having taken the time out of our lives to do that. Well, as Greenpeace evolved, we next took on French atmospheric nuclear testing and more or less won that battle to get them at least to go underground with their nuclear bomb tests. And then we switched completely to save the whales. For a lot of the peace people in Greenpeace, this didn't make any sense. And so some of them dropped out at that time because they couldn't see what on earth whales had to do with anything. But the fact is our first campaigns were really of a much more humanitarian nature. And people forget that these days. As Greenpeace evolved, the peace kind of got lost and all there was left with the green and by the time I left, 15 years later, after being full-time as a director of the organization and president for a short period, Greenpeace had become to characterize humans as the enemies of the earth, the enemies of nature. And so had the rest of the movement. And it's still that way today, especially with the climate issue, as if we are the great destroyers of the planet and everything else is good, all the bunnies and fish and elephants and flowers and trees are all good and we are the only evil species as my good friend the founder of the Gaia hypothesis uh, James Lovelock put it humans are a rogue species on Gaia that was before he changed his mind about climate a few years back and now he actually thinks that we might doing the work of Gaia by putting CO2 in the atmosphere to prevent the slide into another major glaciation, which is due at some point in the near future. And I don't know if he recognizes it, but also in order to prevent the reduction of CO2 to the point where it was so low that plants couldn't grow anymore, we we have actually brought a balance back to the carbon cycle by burning fossil fuels inadvertently. We, We did it so that we could have energy, but what we've done inadvertently and which people should start to recognize now instead of demonizing CO2 to understand that it is the basis for all life on earth and we have helped keep it at a high level so plants can grow uh, productively. Anyways, that's what happened to Greenpeace. It it turned into an organization that was basically anti-human in the end and that's not me. I describe myself as not only a sensible environmentalist, but a humanitarian environmentalist. If environmentalism rejects humans, that's not a very positive uh, thing for the future. And I've, I've always said that if, you know, these people who think there's too many people in the world and that humans are bad and evil and horrible, and yet they're still flying around in jet planes two or three times a year to fancy resorts to climate change meetings, I mean, why don't they get rid of themselves first? And then it'd be a nicer place if people would stop telling us that we're all horrible and evil and and there's too many of us, you know? Uh, That's kind of how I think of it. I mean, I'm just joking about them all offing themselves, but I I wish they'd just shut up about it because we are not evil. Most, almost all people are trying to do good. There, There are evil elements in the world today. We all know what they are and what they're doing. But most people are trying to live honest, productive lives in their communities and are not just a bunch of selfish creeps. 
So uh, let's get off this anti-human kick and turn environmentalism back into a humanitarian form of environmentalism where we do what sustainability actually says we should do, balance the environmental, social, and economic factors. The social and economic factors are about people. The environmental factor is about maintaining a healthy environment that people will thrive in. And of course, they all have to be uh, looked after. But we're doing a pretty good job in much of the industrialized world. The rivers of Europe were dead when we took our riverboat up there in the early 80s and campaigned toxic waste coming out of the factories, plugging pipes and stuff like that, and it worked. And now there's fish in most of the European rivers, just like there are in the North American rivers, which were also badly polluted before the Clean Water Act was brought in. Yeah, I mean, there's a sort of big, broad sweep of history that a lot of people don't understand that human beings were locked in a mortal death combat with the limitations and predations of nature for most of human history. We barely had enough food. There were horrible diseases and and uh, terrible bears and lions and all that. And so we had this sort of pitched battle against nature. And then when we began through the Industrial Revolution to gain some sort of excess, that came at the expense of nature. And there's no doubt that some of the smog and, and pollution of the Industrial Revolution in early 20th century was a problem. Then we got enough excess that we could start dealing with the effects of pollution in productive ways, with scrubbers and finding ways to, to minimize our impact on the environment. That was a very positive process and the, I think the original goal of the environmental movement was to make sure that we kept the planet clean enough that we could all enjoy its fruits in the future. It did not view human beings as cancerous or antithetical to every other ecosystem and life on the planet. And in so it, it, I don't mean to trivialize your life work because it's hugely important what you're doing. But the analogy that I was sort of thinking about is – if you have kids, kids leave a mess all the time and, and getting them to clean up after themselves is a challenge and it's a challenge that parents should should take on willingly. It's a long way from there to go, people shouldn't have children because they create a mess. And I think that anti-human element where the fact that human beings can make a mess and we need to find ways to prevent the mess or clean it up when it happens to saying there really shouldn't be that many human beings, that's a huge leap uh, that seems vastly to go against the original philosophy. It certainly does. And look at now, the Chinese have become wealthy enough that they are really focusing on cleaning up their air pollution. There, there's, you know, there's a really interesting conflation going on. All during the Paris Climate Conference, the TV was using photos of bad air quality in China as if it had something to do with CO2. And of course it doesn't. It is true that they all come out of the same smokestack, the CO2 and the, and the pollution. But the CO2 is not pollution, it's food for plants, and it's odorless and colorless, and has absolutely zero to do with pollution. So the Chinese are kind of saying, don't worry, we're going to clean up our coal plants, but what they mean is they're going to get rid of the pollution. They're, they're, they're just playing along with the West on the idea that CO2 should be reduced. They're not going to be reducing CO2, they're going to be building more coal plants, but they're going to be cleaner plants. Now, India isn't there yet. They're still, their GDP per capita is still far lower than China's, and they have 300 million people without electricity. The reason uh, Prime Minister Modi kicked Greenpeace out of India last fall, and he did a good job of doing that because they were undermining the energy and agricultural policies of a country that needs to bring 300 million people up out of abject poverty, and he wasn't going to let them get in the way of that. And in a way, I think that Greenpeace doing that is a form of sedition, undermining the nation's uh, e efforts to bring its people up uh, and, and, and give them a better life. And, you know, there is simply no doubt that our energy and our industrial revolution that we've had has given us more longevity, longer lives, has made us wealthier by far, and has given us our personal freedom. The private automobile, just for one example, uh, provides individual humans with much more freedom than they had when they, they had to get go everywhere on a horse. If they could afford a horse, then they'd have to walk. Right. Now, for a lot of my listeners, the idea that um, CO2 is anything but a pollutant, I guess it just shows how far we've come from having any personal agriculture. Like I grew up, uh, my aunt and uncle had a greenhouse, which was glorious, of course, in England, because you could just have all kinds of wonderful plants that you wouldn't otherwise be able to grow. 
How is it that we can best get people to understand that, like at the moment, I think it's like one out of every seven plants in the world is alive because of extra CO2 that we've put into the air. How can we get people to understand just what a fundamental food it is for the entire ecosystem? Well, I I don't know if it is that people just want to have a religious belief that has a doomsday scenario in it. So many religions do. Uh, You know, there's supposed to be an apocalypse in most of them. And even even the Pope has been sucked into this thing and is saying that the world is an immense pile of filth today and we must go back to like a previous time, like when people had an average age of 35, I suppose. And I, I just don't get how intelligent people cannot be aware of the fact that carbon dioxide is the basis of all life on Earth. Along with water, CO2 is the most important food for life. Everything is carbon-based that is alive on this Earth. Organic chemistry is the chemistry of carbon, which is the chemistry of life. And so anybody with basic science should be able to understand that, or anybody with just a grade 12 education should be able to understand that. It, it, it is amazing that we are now teaching that CO2, carbon dioxide, is a pollutant which gives people the impression that it's toxic. It's, it's at 400 parts per million in the atmosphere, which is 0.04%. 400 sounds like a big number, but parts per million is, is, a, small, is a small number, and 400 parts per million is only 0.04%. Our breath has 40,000 parts per million of CO2 in it. In other words, it's 4% CO2. We breathe in 30% oxygen and breathe out 4% CO2, which represents the sugars that we have burned in our body, which were made by plants who ate CO2. So we complete that cycle by putting the CO2 back into the atmosphere. But we're also putting a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels, and that is bringing a balance back to a carbon cycle that was being depleted continuously for 150 million years. It used to be the Earth was hotter and had more volcanoes putting CO2 back into the atmosphere, but that stopped when the Earth cooled, as it has over the 4.5 billion years of its life, and it's very unlikely that there will ever be enough volcanic activity to prevent the depletion of CO2 by the calcifying creatures in the sea that make shells out of carbon dioxide and calcium, which falls on the bottom and goes into rocks like limestone. So there's been a constant depletion of CO2 up until during the last glaciation, 18,000 years ago at the peak of it, CO2 fell to a level that was almost low enough to cause the death of plants, 30 parts per million above the 100 parts per million threshold where all plants would die. If, if we had not intervened and put some of the CO2 back into the air that had been pulled out by plants and turned into oil, gas, and coal, CO2 would eventually have become depleted to a level that would result in the death of plants. And we know for sure when it went down to 180 that plants nearly stopped growing. It was a very hard time for vegetation on the planet. And many people believe that the plants at higher elevations did die because air is thinner the higher elevation you go up. This is just the kind of facts that we're finding from studying the history of this earth. So we we have done life, not ourselves only, we've done life a great favor by bringing a balance back to the carbon cycle. And hopefully we will continue to replenish it in the atmosphere up to, say, a thousand parts per million in the next couple of hundred years, plants will grow much faster and our, our agriculture will be much more productive. Plants need less water when they have more CO2. That's proven by the pattern of greening of the earth that is occurring now as a result of our increased uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. So the, the climate change alarmists and warmists, whatever you want to call them, have got it completely 100% backwards. CO2 and this, you is know, a positive effect. It is not yeah, and, a negative and this, effect. And th- this is what blows people's mind because a lot of people, when they have pushback against this sort of catastrophic anthropogenic global 
scare, thermogadonite warning stuff. They think that the pushback is to say, well, the effects won't be quite as bad as they say, or it's not as poisonous. But what you're saying is that this is actually a, a an ecosystem positive event, that we're returning CO2 to the atmosphere that the plants so desperately need, that through the process uh, of... Uh, millions of years has been depleted that we're actually saving and extending and enhancing the uh, ecosystem by putting the co2 back into the atmosphere that is so mind-blowing for people i I just i can hear exploding heads all over youtube when this video goes out it's not just the atmosphere it's also the oceans they've also made up this fabricated story called ocean acidification that as co2 goes up in the atmosphere more of it will be absorbed by the oceans and it will kill all the coral reefs and shellfish and the plankton that have calcareous shells and everything will die. Well, maybe they don't say everything, but they call it a great catastrophe coming in the sea. When, in fact, increased CO2 in the oceans increases the productivity of the phytoplankton with calcareous shells in the sea. This is proven. These people now, they're, 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 they're getting to the point of where it is a blatant conspiracy what they're doing. Because they are now changing all of the data sets of the temperature measurements that have been made and every correction, they, they call it, correction or har- homogenation adjustment, they're making adjustments to the temperature that was recorded at the time and making it higher for the most recent period and lower for the past. Now, for some coincidental reason, when they make these adjustments, it never looks like it's getting cooler or warmer slower. It always looks like it's getting warmer faster when they make these adjustments. And about six data sets have now been, quote, adjusted, leading up to the Paris Convention. And now just recently, one of the satellite data sets, which are the most accurate way to measure temperature, which was showing a pause in global temperature from 2000 to now, They've made it look like it's warming by adjusting the numbers and rationalizing with all kinds of gobbledygook. This is what's really going on. And, and they're making up this ocean acidification. When they, it, Just to enlarge on, on this, we can continue burning fossil fuels. And actually, if we, if, if we wanted to, we could get the exact level of CO2 in the atmosphere and then level it off by using only enough fossil fuels to keep it at that level in the future, maybe switch to nuclear uh, much more than fossil fuels. We can actually control the level of CO2 in the atmosphere, not only with fossil fuels, but 5% of our emissions are from cement manufacturing, where we are taking the fossils of those ancient sea creatures that calcified themselves, which is called limestone, and making cement with it. That's how we make cement, is we turn it back to carbon dioxide and calcium oxide, which the, those creatures combined in the sea in the first place. So we, there's enough ca- calcium carbonate in the Earth's crust for us to keep this planet alive and healthy for hundreds of millions more years. Whereas if we hadn't intervened, if you just take a straight projection of what was happening with CO2 levels, it would be less than 2 million years from now till life began to die. And that means if you take like the atomic uh, bomb clock uh, that they say is so many seconds to midnight, uh, what that would be 38 seconds to midnight in terms of the time it was going to be till life died from when the earth began. So we intervened at 38 seconds to midnight and replenished the CO2 in the atmosphere. And the funny thing about it is it doesn't really look like CO2 has anything to do with warming. It is theoretically a greenhouse gas. If all else was equal, you'd expect some warming, nowhere near as much as they are creating in these models, which are just computer programs. They're not the real world, yet they're sort of pretending they are for their own purposes of getting huge sums of money, a billion billion five going into NASA for climate research. If you're a member of NASA, you cannot be a skeptic. You have to retire before you're allowed to say anything. That's why this group called the Right Climate Stuff has formed. They are all retired NASA astronauts, space architects, etc. And they are skeptics. And they weren't allowed to talk about it when they were in NASA or it would jeopardize their 1.5 billion per year. But it doesn't look like CO2 is going to lower the temperature, uh, raise the temperature. That's unfortunate in a way because a couple more degrees 
would make the earth more habitable, especially northern Canada and, 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 and Russia. A huge amount of the world's land is in those northern boreal and tundra areas where if they could be productive from an agricultural and biodiversity point of view, it wouldn't be a bad idea. But at least if, it, if, it, if CO2 doesn't prevent the slide into a cold world again, as has happened, we know eight times in the last 800,000 years, these major glaciations that are in, 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 circ, they're, they're in sync with the Milankovitch cycle, which has got to do with the Earth's orbit and the Earth's tilt and wobble. And that is presumably because of changes in solar radiation. At least when we go into that slide, we will have enough carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to have productive agriculture where the dirt is still showing. Unfortunately, the whole of Canada and Russia is going to be covered in a mile or two of ice. If we, that's 80,000 years from now. It's a slow process sliding in to the glaciation. We co it comes out in 10,000 10, years from 18,000 years ago to 8,000 years ago. All the ice melted in a very short time geologically speaking, and now we're in this interglacial period, which we think is started already to gradually go down into this long slide into the cold. And that will be very difficult for all the species, including humans, that today do live in Canada and northern U.S. and, and the, the, the northern European and Russia, Japan, etc., all will go into an ice world. Uh, if that does occur, and if CO2 doesn't stop it, which it doesn't really look like it's going to. Right. I mean, this is something that's hard for people to understand because there's such a uniformity in the media and, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio with his private jets and concerns about CO2 emissions and so on. But I sort of try and get people to, to understand that, uh, number one, modeling is not science. Uh, modeling is data manipulation. Just like your spreadsheet or your accounting system should only reflect your company's profits. You can't just type things into it and make money. It's just a reflection of reality. And number two, consensus, particularly when the consensus involves significant conflict of interest, is not science. You know, there was a consensus at one point that the world was flat and that the Earth was the center of the solar system. And the consensus is not science. Modeling is not science. And particularly when the modeling, which they have, not only is not accurately predicting the future without all these manipulations, but can't even accurately go back and predict what did already happen. Uh, and this idea that we're going to uh, hang the lives of, of hundreds of thousands or millions of people, uh, trillions and trillions of the world's uh, precious uh, capital resources and so on, on self-referential computer modeling, which, which has almost no predictive ability and has not even backwards predictability, is a truly astounding thing. And, and the degree to which this has become universally accepted uh, is is a staggering thing to those outside the matrix how it's how it's been achieved it is quite amazing and as i say it's it's sort of like a new religion that is also a kind of far left ideology uh, thrown in uh, centralized control over all of us seems to be part of the formula just uh, you know a couple of points is that we are not uh, doing this on purpose, the, the refertilization of the environment. It's, it's something that, that, that we've discovered that we're doing. This is what people need to learn. It's really hard to understand. Like Leo DiCaprio, he's not really attacking CO2 emissions. He's attacking large corporations. He says they're all greedy. and he, So his, his is basically the left-wing political uh, Bernie Sanders uh, approach to the, to the situation. It's got nothing to do with science. If it did, he'd realize that he's just a giant hypocrite and should probably put a piece of duct tape over his mouth. You know, it, it's just ridiculous that he can say what he's saying and be in a, one of the 11th largest private yacht in the world or something with helicopters on it and flying around in a private jet to, to protest the oil sands and then coming back and telling everybody that he has experienced global warming because he was in a Chinook, which has a scientific <laughs> explanation. Air warms when it comes over a mountain range and falls down to the lower elevation on the other side. It's called the adiabatic effect, Leo. And it's a Chinook. It's not global warming. But he, he now believes that he has seen it with his own eyes and felt it with his own skin. You know, I mean, it's just it, that's the religious side of it. So and it, I, it's. No, go ahead. Sorry. 
No, you go ahead. I, well, I, I finished that one. I was just wondering, Patrick, because, I mean, when I, when I grew up, I, I grew up uh, during the, um, the 70s. Uh, I was born in 66. I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. And the global climate change hysteria is sort of the latest in a long line of things that actually had significantly dark effects on my childhood. You know, when I grew up, of course, the population explosion, zero population growth. Um, uh, Hal Linden, I think, the late great planet Earth. Paul Ehrlich with his unbelievably disastrous, we were going to run out of oil and food in the 1980s. And like, it was a pretty bleak series of giant waves of despair crashing through my childhood. And I've gone through this a couple of times in in the show. Maybe if you can touch on some of these. I wonder if the degree of investment in this latest hysteria might be there because if this one is disproven, I wonder if it's the last time the boy can cry wolf because there have been so many of these scares throughout at least my lifetime and maybe they were going on beforehand. I think they largely started in the 60s with uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and so on, DDT being another one we've talked about recently. I wonder if they're really committed because I think if this one is disproven, I think it's going to be really tough to get away with the next one. And our whole industry might, Lord, help it would be lovely if it could vanish from the earth. I I think actually this is not a recent phenomenon. The guy standing on the corner with a sign saying the end is nigh, (laughs) I think has been around since the beginning of civilization and the beginning of communication. There is is some uh, reason that that gathers people together. I guess maybe it's in, you know, to come together to, to face the, the devil uh, collectively, more strength if you're all believing in the same disaster scenario or something. I've never understood religion, so it's not very good to ask me why these people are doing this, because I, I am, I think, a, a, a product of the Enlightenment, a product of, of agnostic parents who taught me science and bought me the books of knowledge when I was eight years old, and so I've, I, you know, it wasn't really till I discovered ecology that I sort of got religion in a, in a way, and that I could see that through science uh, and the infinity of the universe that you could gain an insight into the mystery of life, uh, and 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 also recognize that it is mysterious. People are asking me now because a, a lot of sperm whales, up to thirty or so, beached themselves in the North Sea in the other the other day last week, I think it was. And uh, people all want to know why. Why are the whales beaching themselves? Is it the seismic testing? Is it the military submarines? Is it the wind turbines offshore making noises that are confusing them? They, 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 they have a need to know why this is happening. And I'm going like, do you think if a whale saw a guy jump off a bridge to his death, he would be able, the whale would be able to figure out why that happened? <laughs> no. And there's, there's no reason why we should be able to figure out why whales are beaching themselves. There are mysteries in this world. And th- this, this is why people sort of like to believe that we have a crystal ball to predict the future of the climate. We can't even produce, predict a stock market or a horse race, never mind the complexity of the global climate. Even the IPCC said, and they go against their own, own advice, they said, because the climate system is chaotic, coupled, and nonlinear, it is not possible to predict future climate states. They have said that themselves. Actually, they repeated it three times in three of the reports, 2001, 2007, and 2013, in various per- iterations, they have said that. So at the same time, they go about trying to predict the climate and insisting that we are the main cause of the warming that's happened since 1950, when there is actually no proof of that. That's why they say it's extremely likely that we are. Mm. Likely is not a science word. It is not a word that comes out of an experiment. It is a word that is used in law and politics, like the balance of probabilities in law is that it's 50-50 likely. The beyond a reasonable doubt is supposed to be kind of a 90% certainty. It's not a total certainty. And likely is a word like that. It's a word that implies a judgment is being made. It's not a word that implies observation and replication and the experimental method have been used to determine the truth of this situation. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. It just so happens we're in a 300-year warming period that started when the Little Ice Age peaked in 1700, and it just so happens that CO2 is going up in the atmosphere because we're putting some in. And everybody is taking 
this tiny little segment of time in geologic history and saying, oh, these two things are in, in, cor in correlation with each other, therefore CO2 must be causing the temperature increase. It, it is just completely ridiculous that people would, that scientists would say that science is settled when there isn't even any observational evidence. It's just a hypothesis that CO2 will cause warming. And, and it's a hypothesis warming. for which there is no null hypothesis. And, and you're one of the great um, efficiencies in, in intellectual life, at least for me, is if there's no null hypothesis, I'm not even interested in the hypothesis. In other words, if there's no way to disprove the hypothesis, then it's got nothing to do with science or facts or reason or evidence. It is fundamentally a religious belief. And so all of these, and there's tons of arguments floating well, out there in the world, and you, you can't possibly disprove them, and I have no further interest in them. I, you can come pretty close to disproving it. And there's t I'll give you two data sets. One is the Vostok ice cores, 400,000 years, showing a really strong correlation between CO2 and temperature. They are tracking each other four different times through four different ice ages or glaciation periods and four different interglacial periods. So Al Gore in his Inconvenient Truth said, see, when the CO2 goes up, the temperature goes up. That data set of temperature and CO2 has been analyzed by four different people and published, peer-reviewed, CO2 lags temperature by an average of, 400, of 800 years. In other words, the, the, the temperature goes up before the CO2 goes up. The cause never comes after the effect. The cause is always first. The effect is second in a cause-effect relationship. And cor correlation by itself doesn't prove that one of those is causing the other either. But there's a plausible explanation. If the temperature is being, be, being affected by the Milankovitch cycle, which it's in tune with, makes sense. Because the Milankovitch cycle is about the shape of the Earth's orbit and the tilt of the Earth, which would change the temperature of the earth when the t when the when the temperature of the earth warms the seas warm not as fast there's a lag and when the seas warm they give off co2 because warm water holds less gas including co2 than cold water does so the earth the sea is kind of breathing as the temperature goes up and down co2 comes out when the earth warms and is reabsorbed when the earth cools and that's why it went down to 180 parts per million during the peak of the ice glaciation, and that's why it came back up to 280 parts per million when the Earth warmed, where it was before the Industrial Revolution. So this is more or less conclusive. Secondly, it, just in the recent times, in the last hundred and so years, from 1910 to 1940, there was a period of warming of 0.4 degrees over 30 years, which the IPCC does not ascribe to our CO2 emissions because our CO2 emissions were just tiny then compared to what they are today. Yet they say that from, and, and then from 1940 to 1970, there was actually a slight cool period when we started really pumping CO2 into the atmosphere. And then the one that fits is from 1970 to 2000, when we also had a 0.4, perhaps 0.5 degree rise in temperature over 30 years, the same as the one from 1910 to 1940. So how do they know what that the, that the same factors that were that caused 1910 to 1940 weren't the same factors that caused 1970 to 2000 and then it flattened off for 15 years now or more some people say 18 years it's been flat and now they're readjusting all the temperature records to make it look like it's been still going up and and it's it's like they're not even smirking they're they're straight-facedly bald-facedly lying that this is what's happening, that there is no pause. That's what they're trying to say now. Because if there is a pause, that also disproves their theory. Because if from 2000 to now, about one-third of all human CO2 emissions have been emitted, as China and India have ramped up their CO2, and all around the world, the developing countries, so there's this exponential increase in CO2 emissions from 2000 to now. Meanwhile, there is no significant increase in temperature, which there should be if CO2 is so-called thermostat of global temperature. So it's more or less proven now that it is not. That's, I would say as a scientist, that I can be confident in saying that. 
And uh, yeah, I, I certainly appreciate that that pushback. My particular point was for the true believers, there's no null hypothesis. There's no data that they will accept uh, that seems to disprove the thesis. Uh, and the other thing, too, that I find really fascinating about this particular debate is the degree of emotional vitriol that is involved always makes me pretty suspicious about the motives of the people involved. And and you see this in particular when the left gets into the extreme hard left, the Marxist left gets involved in any particular debate. It usually tends to devolve into just a massive amount of verbal abuse being flung around until people either flee the arena in disgust or sort of bow down to the uh, new masters of language. And that seems to have been happening. There was a time where you could be a skeptic. And now, of course, they've invoked the Holocaust term denier and all this kind of nonsense. And it it just has become so... Uh, fraught with verbal abuse that it seems that would be the if you've got the right data just keep patiently explaining it to people as people have been doing with evolution and other things until you know you generally turn the tide of majority opinion but the amount of hysteria and vitriol has always raised my suspicions about the politicized increase of negative language in these areas actually uh when i put you know post something on a site in the comment section and people come back at me I am actually quite surprised at the level of just abject ignorance and uh, nastiness combined with ignorance that comes across. It, 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 is, it, it is, to me, makes me fear for the enlightenment, this whole thing, yeah. that we are actually descending into a dark age of science, not just in climate, but in other areas as well. The social sciences in particular and all this postmodernism there's so much gobbledygook being published that a normal person can't even understand what they're trying to say, and they think it's meaningful. And it is not, though. It is, it, it is garbage, a lot of it. And that's, that's also, there's articles being published now about how much garbage is being published. So, the, you know, my, my favorite saying is, I fear an intellectual gulag with Greenpeace as my prison guards. That's how it feels in my mind, that is, it, what these people are trying to do. They are trying to uh, basically uh, do at, at an intellectual level what the Spanish Inquisition did at a religious and persecution level. And again, back to the end is nigh and all of that. These, the, the, the world has had a lot of nasty periods, the Inquisition being one of them, where they actually burned people without any evidence whatsoever against them. Just someone had to rat on them, like in, like, like in, in the Soviet Union in the past when all your neighbors were supposed to rat on you if they saw you doing something that wasn't right. And they did. And people got sent to the gulag because they broke some silly little rule. Yeah. No, and it's one thing to have freedom of speech. It's another thing to feel that uh, when you honestly express um, reasonably backed up and evidenced convictions that – you know, we, we've seen academics who've had uh, inquiries and inquisitions launched against them for for publishing things that go counter to a particular narrative. There is a kind of smell of witch hunt in the air that has a significantly chilling effect on the most necessary conversations about the most contentious issues. And now there's all this hysteria in campuses about I've been triggered and, and I need to get a hug and, and I've, I've experienced or I've, I've been exposed to ideas counter to my particular narrative and therefore those ideas should be banned it, it's really it, it feels like we're just in this kind of um yes a salem witch trial kind of mentality where telling the truth is becoming more and more risky and there's fewer and fewer people to tell it to well that's the problem like i'm i'm on twitter for a couple of years now i i, did, I started a twitter account because of the golden rice campaign uh w- which i'm still working on and is it's coming eventually uh but Uh, And I've got 10,000 followers now, but I get these people coming in as trolls, as they call them, and just being plain nasty, just saying you're an asshole or whatever, you know, and and we're a lot worse than that. Uh, And so I have no choice but to block these people, and they're longer in my conversation unless they want to listen to me while I've got them blocked, but probably not. Uh, So... You, you feel a little bit like you're forced into your own subgroup of people who are interested in what you're talking about. But all the people out there who are already into the, the climate disaster scenario, uh, they're just being m- mean and, and horrible and name-calling and, and, and at the same time thinking they know everything. 
So it's, it's a bit of a chasm, I would say. Uh, but there has been a bit of a chasm up just the other day. Uh, two things, actually. Uh, Michael Mann, who is notoriously nasty, actually has joined in with another group of scientists saying, you guys are wrong. There is a slowdown in the warming, even though there is a speed up in the CO2. So there's been a paper that made the Times of London. And also just day before yesterday, a paper has come out from ISIS, which is a prestigious journal reporting on marine science, saying that the, the, the threat of ocean acidification has been gr gr greatly exaggerated and that there does not really appear to be such a great threat. And that's made the rounds. But boy, do they come back at these people, uh, like viciously. They come back and try to destroy. Their, it's all about character assassination. It's got nothing to do with science. If you go to the Smog blog, which is David Suzuki's hate website that he doesn't acknowledge any association with, even though his personal PR guy uh, is, is the, 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 the brains behind it, and it's funded by some millionaire hedge fund guy or something. I'm not sure. But it's basically a hate site that is attacking skeptic, people who are on the skeptical side of the climate issue. And then there's skeptical, skeptical science, which is John Cook, the psychologist from New Zealand's website, who is uh, very clever at turning things around and, and uh, basically a very clever propagandist. And he does the same thing. He discredits people and discredits ideas uh, in a way that I guess is credible to the people who don't have much brain power or don't have much critical thinking or whatever it is about these people that makes them so sure of themselves when there is actually no proof that CO2 is the cause of much of anything except refertilizing the earth. Yeah, and government grants. Now, these are two big topics, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. Uh, I recently did an interview regarding uh, GMOs and um, the, the science behind um, not only the safety, but the, um, the health positive effects for a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't either get certain um, uh, supplements or wouldn't even get the food at all. Uh, GMOs and, and DDT, of course, now that the Zika outbreak is back in the news and everyone's afraid of tiny flying objects, which are easily dealt with through DDT. I wonder if you could just drop a few of your thoughts in about uh, I guess, these two acronyms and where they stand in the environmental movement? Well, the the whole GMO thing was really a sad situation because, you know, with nuclear energy, for example, there is radiation, which is an issue and can be dangerous. Although the people at Fukushima, uh, where, where they've evacuated, the radiation level is less than it is in Denver from the high elevation and less than it is in lots of other places where there's actually quite a bit of radiation in the environment. So the overreaction to radiation is a fact, but it is real. With GMOs, there is nothing. There is no ghost in the seed. There is no devil in there anywhere. There's nothing to be afraid of. And yet they've made this, these words like Frankenstein food and killer tomato and Terminator seed, all these scary uh, made-up names, which have no basis in reality whatsoever. And yet genetic modification or recombinant DNA biotech, as it should be called, or, or horizontal gene transfer is a more simple English way of describing it. Because we're all genetically modified. You and I and every other living thing that was created by sexual reproduction is different from their parents because we're a random mixture of our parents' genes, thereby scrambled so much that we're genetically modified. And we have been genetically modifying plants through a conventional cross-pollination and breeding for 10,000 years, and for the last 100 years, we've been modifying them by bombarding them with nuclear radiation, muta you know, radiation mutation, and mutation-causing chemicals like colchicine, where you purposefully cause mutations in the seeds to see if anything interesting happens. It's a scattergun approach. You have to treat millions of seeds and then plant them and see if anything interesting comes up. And then if it's something does, then you start breeding with that. Whereas with GMOs, it's a very precise taking of a gene, putting it on the back of a bacteria and putting that bacteria into the, into the germ of another species where that gene gets incorporated into the DNA of that other species. Something that bacteria have been doing since the beginning of life is horizontal gene transfer, only they were doing it haphazardly. In, in human breeding, for example, in, in our society, most people choose each other. And so that's that, that's basically like in the wild. Species in the wild 
nobody is telling which one to mate with the other. They find each other and they mate. And most hum but controlled, but sorry, but arranged marriage in humans, like is done in India and other countries, is direct breeding in the same way that we've been doing with plants and animals all through history. The parents actually make a decision which male and which female will breed together. So that's been going on forever. Uh, so we have to understand that the term genetic modification is actually a very broad term that includes almost everything in agriculture and, and, and humans and all the other species in the wild. GMOs, on the other hand, make it possible for us to take desirable traits from one species, such as the, the beta carotene, which is in the kernel of corn, which is what makes it yellow. There's no, no beta carotene in the grain of rice. And no rice variety is able to put beta carotene in its grain. Golden rice is where we've taken genes from corn, put them in a rice plant, and now the rice plant not only puts beta carotene in its leaves, which it always did, because every green leaf has beta carotene in it, but puts it in the kernel of rice, which is what hundreds of millions of poor people are eating every day, and the poorest of the poor just get rice. If we put beta carotene in rice, it will end the deaths of two million children per year under age six, and it will end the blindness being caused in a quarter of a million or more children every year. The biggest cause of child mortality is vitamin A deficiency, which is what we make with beta carotene. And yet the Greens are against it. As a matter of fact, Greenpeace focuses on golden rice and says golden rice is a Trojan horse for GMOs. Therefore, we must not allow golden rice to happen. So in other words, and they, and they say, why? Well, there may be some unknown environmental and health effects. Unknown? If you don't know what it could be, then you don't know anything that could be wrong. And so by saying unknown, you know, you're making it sound like it's scary, like it might be a tiger behind a tree or something. But there's no tiger behind the tree. There's nothing in GMOs that could be harmful to anybody or anything. And so they get away with this and are now responsible for the deaths of 2 million children per year for at least the last 10 years. Now, with DDT and malaria, because it became political and Bill Ruckelhaus of the EPA started the ball rolling by United States banning DDT, they forgot to discriminate between the agricultural broad-scale spraying of DDT for insect control on crops with the medical use of DDT for the prevention of malaria by spraying it on the walls inside homes, not outside, in where the people are at dusk having dinner with mosquitoes all around them. And DDT not only repels mosquitoes, it kills them if they come into the house and land on the wall. 50 million unnecessary deaths occurred during the 50 years while DDT was banned by the World Health Organization, by USAID in the developing countries where DDT is still a big problem. The United States had malaria up until the 40s, but it was eradicated by using DDT. So it was great to ban DDT in the States because there was no medical problem that DDT was necessary for. But South Africa continued using DDT all through this time. Mozambique had nine times the deaths per capita from malaria because it wasn't using DDT. And the, the, the story is written out. I mean, go to junkscience.com if you want to see a really good documentation of the whole DDT story. Just Google junk science DDT and you'll see it. And it was a real tragedy. So there we got 50 million people unnecessarily died from not being able to eradicate mosquitoes, uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu helped lead the effort to bring the use of DDT back in in, in the year 2002 to 6 in that period when they were discussing it at the Stockholm Convention, the Dirty Dozen. Now, now there's an exemption for DDT. Any country can apply for an exemption to use DDT for malaria control, and many are. But uh, now with this Zika virus, it's the same situation. We should be using DDT in the places where it's spreading in order to stop its spread and to kill the mosquitoes that are spreading it in the same way as we should have been using golden rice for the last 10 years, at least since it was perfected in 2005 to save children. I, I, I've always said that if, if golden rice was a medicine, 
that could cure Ebola or malaria or HIV AIDS, it would have been adopted within a year of being discovered because it has no harmful side effects. It's not a poison like medicines are. Medicines mm. are meant to kill an organism that is trying to kill us usually, like a fluke or a bacteria or a virus. But golden rice is a nutrient in it. It's got beta carotene in it that it didn't have before, which is a necessary nutrient. So, you know, it can't cause harm. It's been proven in experiments feeding children that it works, and yet it's still banned in every country. No country has allowed it to be legalized. Hopefully, between uh, Philippines, Bangladesh, and Indonesia, where the golden rice is now in advanced field trials, it will be put up for uh, re 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 registration and approval in the next year or two, and finally children will get it. But the environmental movement has a lot of blood on its hands, and that's what I mean about it being anti-human. They don't care that two million children die from vitamin A deficiency every year. All they care about is their fundraising campaign against GMOs. And for that, uh, I don't know what should be done to them, but it shouldn't be very nice, whatever it is. It almost makes you wish for a God who could inflict punishments. But um, what um, do, do you think that we, you mentioned this earlier about how people like Dr. Mann is, sort of seem to be coming back around a little bit. All of these hysterias seem endlessly escalating and inevitable until they're not. Do you think that we're sort of at the high point? Do you think it's starting to swing back the pendulum? Where, where do you think things are going as far as facts trumping hysteria uh, going forward? It's still pretty wild. Uh, there's no doubt that a lot more people on the skeptic side are, are beginning to become activated. We just started a new group in Washington, D.C. called the CO2 Coalition. It's come out of the C.S. Marshall Institute, which is a, a post-World War II broad-based policy foundation dealing with war and peace and uh, just about every big issue you can think of. So it, they, they catalyzed this, the beginning of this. Dr. William Happer of Princeton, emeritus physicist, is the, the, the acting chairman of our group. Uh, Richard Linson is a director. I'm a director. A lot of the people in the right climate stuff have joined in. We're having our inaugural meeting in New York on March the 29th. And it's you can go to the website, co2coalition.org, www.co2coalition.org, and learn about the organization. We take memberships in the organization, and we're trying to build a grassroots coalition to educate people about the benefits of carbon dioxide, the most essential food for all life on earth, instead of thinking that it's some kind of pollutant that is causing harm. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I appreciate that work. We'll, of course, put a link to your book and to, to this website because hysterias generally end because people push back. They're doing sort of like a life form that expires on its own. And it does take a certain amount of pushback. And, and right now that pushback can cost people some professional points, some happiness points, some some sort of personal relationship points. But I do think it's worth it. You know, almost everything that's good that we have in this world has been achieved by people pushing back against the irrational masses or highly specialized, irrational, very educated people. And I hugely appreciate the work that you've done uh, in that arena. I strongly urge people, you know, go out, consume your material, uh, buy your books, and of course, join this group. I certainly wish you the best of luck in March with your inaugural meeting. I'm sure that the uh, information will end up online. And uh, Dr. Patrick Moore, always a great pleasure. Enjoy Mexico, where there's considerably more global warming than I'm currently experiencing up here in Canada. Always a great pleasure to chat. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Nice to be with you. Take care.